That you're recording this laugh track, which I've been told is useful to play at entrances to hotels to scare away evil spirits and tame unruly children. Hello and welcome to China Talk, hosted on the Lawfare Network. In this week's edition of Corona Stories, we'll hear from Yang Yang in Beijing, Asmud in Nepal, and Lambert in Singapore. We'll close with some James Brown because that really cheered me up. I'm a particle physicist by training and trade, but I also write a lot on science and China and Chinese policy and society. So I was born and raised in China, and I spent the first 19 years of my life there. And I was raised by a single mother, and we have a complicated relationship. So we don't. For the past 10 and a half years, I've lived in the United States mostly. My mother and I, we don't really have long conversations, especially not in the more recent years. But we do exchange like messages or emails at least once a day. And when the coronavirus outbreak became known in China in late January, and basically days before the、uh, Wuhan and most of Hubei province was put under lockdown, there was a lot of an outpouring of outrage on Chinese social media. Criticizing the government's initial cover-up of this, a lot of it was reminiscent of the SARS outbreak in 2003, and and there was a lot of demand for transparency, for accountability, and for free speech on Chinese social media. I I had a sense that what I was seeing, however hopeful it felt in that moment, was very much just in the moment. But I also had this. Wish, or you might call it fantasy, that、um, I thought this might change my mother's mind just a little bit, because growing up, my mother always taught me that on one hand politics is taboo, on the other hand, I do feel that my mother believes in what she is taught and what she teaches. My mother is a retired elementary school teacher, and so in late January, when my mother started messaging me about the. Situation about the outbreak and the government response with regards to the coronavirus epidemic in China. A lot of it was preconditioned on her worries for me, even though at that point there were barely any cases outside of China, let alone in the United States. She was still, as a mother, more concerned about me than herself, even though there were a fair amount of cases in her city. And so she was basically keeping me in the loop about how the outbreak was progressing, and then she was sending me these,、uh, forwarding me these reports from Chinese state media about the actions the Chinese government is doing. And I think there is a context to this: is my mother very much sees a lot of this as some sort of, of a metaphor or an allegory that that she does. Feel that she is mother, mother town, motherland. The government, the Chinese government, in its propaganda, does use this kind of、uh, maternal or even matronizing language that depicts the government as this benign, not just benign, but genuinely loving and self-sacrificing, mothering figure. And the people, the citizens, are its children who should be submissive and obedient. Or feel out in some way, and so I think my mother was sending me these reports and messages from Chinese state media that always comes with comments and 
annotations of hers because she's a teacher, and and I always feel there is a there is this subtlety that how much my mother was projecting our relationship onto this Chinese government's response to the coronavirus outbreak, and so she was praising the government for its swift action, and she she was. Praising the sense of discipline and strength and resolve the government has shown, and I was always pushing back in the sense that it was inhumane, it was inconsiderate. There were less fortunate members of society, the migrant workers, the homeless, the poor, who have a tenuous relationship with the state, that were most affected and who would not appear in any of these state media reports. And their well-being are basically not being considered with these drastic policies, and I think my mother is kind of projecting that my own criticism of the Chinese government was my own delayed、uh, projection of her treatment of me or the way she raised me when I was a child with a very strict and in some in many ways a brutal home environment. And and so so it's 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 a it's a fascinating thing. And as an academic myself, I find it intellectually fascinating as well. How how this conversation has gone on. I was always、um, pushing back. On one hand, it's because I believe in intellectual integrity that I need to be honest. On the other hand, I also know my mother lives in China. I can't be as free. In talking with her, as I do when I write for English language publications that are based in the U.S. or elsewhere, and but these things I cannot. When the subject is the Chinese government, I cannot say them so explicitly with my mother, and so so it becomes this really interesting conversation I've had with my mother for basically two and a half months now, where the subject matter is the coronavirus outbreak, but. But the conversation is is loaded. It carries this different attitudes towards the government, our different interpretations of state power, as well as these subtle ways of how we are bringing other aspects of our relationship and our understandings of the world into it, while also trying to bypass censorship. I think, oh, my mother. On one hand, she. Is explicitly very patriotic and supportive of the Chinese government. On the other hand, she is also a devout Christian, and I think on a philosophical level, one can easily make the remark of how like communism and Christianity are not compatible. But it's actually not like that. I actually think they are in in some way quite compatible and. Um, not on a philosophical level, but on on a level when it comes to an individual sub,、uh, submitting to a higher power and trying to seek its protection, and I feel that's very much what my mother has been doing for a better part of twenty years now.、Um, when she is on one hand patriotic, on the other hand a Christian, and becoming increasingly devout with the years, and so I think with regards to this pandemic. On one hand, she is singing praises and supportive of the Chinese government's actions. On the other hand, she also understands that the virus is a creation of nature, and and it's something that she feels only God could 
eradicate and and so she is、uh, on one hand sending me articles from Chinese state media about what the Chinese government is doing. On the other hand, she also sends me prayer verses from her or、uh, members in her church group because since large gatherings are suspended in China,、um, her church has moved these mass and these services online and. Parishioners use WeChat to share these、um, prayers they wrote, and and so it's it's been it's an it's it's an interesting thing to see how how my mother navigates this, and and in a way, it it shows that there there is a sense there is a limitation to to both of her beliefs on its own that she she doesn't think God. By itself, would be able to rid the world of this virus. She still believes in government action. On the other hand, she also doesn't think or doesn't feel government action alone is enough. At least not on an emotional, on a psychological level. So she's also praying to God and asking for some kind of. Not necessarily miracle, but at least like divine intervention or divine guidance. I can give you a a bit of an example, which some of it I've also written about with the conversation I had with my mother on the first day of Lunar New Year, which was also the third day after Wuhan and most of Hubei province was put under lockdown. And And I think it's also interesting in, in this context because I called my mother to to wish her happy Lunar New Year, as as one should, and she also kind of like demanded, even though it's、uh, it's always difficult for me to to talk to her. And also in in that particular context, because Hubei and and Wuhan hold a specific place in our hearts because that's where my father and her father, my maternal grandfather. Uh, was born and raised and lived until their early twenties before their education brought them outside of the province.、Um, both my father and and my mother's father left Hubei for graduate school, and in particular, my、uh, grandfather he was not from Wuhan specifically, but he went to undergraduate at Wuhan University, and and neither of the other、uh, two men in our lives are alive. And and so I think it was something emotional, and on Chinese New Year it was also something we're trying to circle around. And I think when our conversation was so focused on the political aspects of the lockdown, was some kind of psychological self defense mechanism that we are trying to somehow intellectualize it so that it becomes less emotionally charged, since it's it's still it, it hinges on 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 tragedy and on loss. And and we were trying to suppress that on on an occasion that should be joyous, since it was the New Year. And so, so my mother and I we talked about the lockdown itself. And I myself, I was very much shaken by this drastic decision that the Chinese government put forward. And I think that the decision was announced somewhere like like midnight or like wee hours in the morning. And it was supposed to like go into effect in the early morning, like eight or nine a.m. I, I believe, and so it basically didn't give people time to prepare. And there were people who were trying to rush out of Wuhan, and 
and also the migrant workers and and this and that 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 were not taken care of. And so, so these were all on my mind when I was speaking to my mother and talking about the lockdown. And I had very, very、um, naively assumed that those would be the first things on my mother's mind. That at least on this issue, she and I should be on the same page. That it was a humanitarian disaster, and she doesn't have to be critical of the Chinese government to recognize the human cost of it. And so I was actually taken aback when my mother was very. Firm in her、uh, support of this drastic action, and so I was saying this is a humanitarian disaster, and my mother was like, she doesn't understand. I was like, how is that not obvious to you that the, the when the the public transport system are are being shut down and people are not allowed to leave, like how would they be able to get food or get regular medical care? Which are doesn't have anything to do with the coronavirus, or like people who are elderly, who are disabled,、uh, who couldn't leave their houses and couldn't get the things they need, and and my mother was genuinely surprised on the other end of the line, and she was just like, I don't understand you. Are you talking about how the people of Wuhan would be able to get food or 怎么吃怎么喝怎么办 They they do it as they would always do. Life goes on as usual, and that actually angered me. And I was like, "You don't live there, and you don't know this." And there, at that point, there was already reports coming out、uh, from inside Wuhan of people、uh, who were posting on on Weibo and and other types of Chinese social media. Since there was that period when the censorship was relatively lax. When people were just talking about the the situation, they found they suddenly found themselves in. Even when we understand the people who could post on on Weibo and use social media, by and large, are are, are middle class or better educated, are more privileged, and the truly vulnerable would not even be able to have that kind of access to to such media. And and so and so, I think my mother was. Was also surprised, and I think she there there wasn't necessarily completely unaware, but she was kind of trying to compartmentalize and not think about it, and she just believed that oh, this virus needs to be contained, and the government is taking this action, and and people would naturally support it because this was the only option, and she believes that the Chinese government would have taken care of the people. Um, whether they're in or out of Wuhan, and and so I was also pushing her on that point about the initial censorship, especially、um, when there was the the, the provincial to the the provincial People's Congress and Party Congress that was in session in mid January in in Hubei, uh, uh, in in Wuhan, in in the capital of the province, and and I was saying that how the case number didn't increase over that stretch of time, and that is such an obvious. Anomaly with any epidemic, and I was telling my mother, you don't have to say anything, but that just so that like you must also see this and know it's not natural and not right. And my mother was saying, oh no, it's not like that because the virus has a two week incubation period, and that was exactly like the amount of time where you didn't see the increase in case count. Of course, we knew that.、Uh, we knew then that the. Virus was already spreading in December, and now I I think there are newer reports about how this was probably already there in 
in November. And so that two week incubation period was such a, it was unscientific and, and it was, it, it was actually odd, but, but my mother said it in, in a way that, that wasn't, she was trying to twist herself to, to believe it. It was something that she just accepted it and found it just like to be absolutely true. And, and she didn't need to question it. And so I found that to be, to be interesting as well. And I think I, I did push her in that conversation where we talked for over an hour. And, and I, I think a part of me, I'm still trying to digest that conversation, whether I pushed too hard and, and that made her sad when she was still helpless. Like if she had compartmentalized and looked away from the plight inside Wuhan as a way to feel not completely powerless, also as a way to preserve her own mental well-being. Why was I trying to expose that to her and try to almost put a moral judgment on that, that if she wasn't identifying with with the humanitarian disaster, there was something almost selfish or less aware of her. In that conversation, she talked about on how her father, when he was a student, an undergraduate student at Wuhan University in the 1950s, and then he participated in the civilian efforts to to help with the flood relief when when Yanzi flooded to historic levels that summer. And so I think that was one moment when when we were trying to dance around the people we were closest to and who were from the province and whom we have lost, but but the conversation inevitably went back to it. She and I are very different people, and that was very apparent from a very young age, when I was very young, that that, that we have a, a fundamentally different uh, worldview with regards to our our attitudes towards authority, and and it was. For that reason and a lot of other reasons that I knew that I couldn't stay in China, that I had to leave. And and so it wasn't that being in the U.S. has changed me. It has allowed me to grow into the person I've wanted to be. But I think it, it comes as no surprise to my mother or myself that we are very different people. Hi, namaste. I'm Osmod and I'm based in Kathmandu, Nepal. Also, the first coronavirus case appeared around like two and a half months ago, around like roughly 70, 75 days ago. So we had one confirmed case. So since then, it's been, we haven't done that much testing in Nepal. So it's a country of 30 million people. So to give you an idea, it's the size of Beijing or almost the size of New York in terms of population. So with that number of people, we have just carried around 2,200 tests in the last two and a half months. So the country is in lockdown, you know, since last couple of weeks, all the businesses are shut. Nepal is like, you know, one of the main sources of revenues is tourism. That's gone downhill, like everyone else in the world. For a lot of Nepali, I think it's causing, starting to cause a lot of pains. Oh, this is April 7th, 2020. What has happened in Nepal is there were cases in the past where the government, especially the police, to use force on people. There were videos emerging of people, the police beating up people, like, you know, if they're walking on the streets, just... So that was not very well taken in the media. 
and also is i don't think you know that should be happening rather than safeguarding people you know the government was using force but now i think largely people have you know largely due to awareness also and also what do you call it repeated government maybe that's the word you know <laughs> they have largely stayed home uh so in nepal what happens is a lot of times so people get grocery on a day to day basis you know there are a lot of uh, local stores so usually you know there's a grocery store in every corner of the streets there are multiple in one streets so usually uh people we just go and buy on a day to day basis for people who are largely like middle class this problem like i think any like anywhere else in the world hasn't hit hard but for a lot of people and when i talk about nepal this closely like you know 90% of people in the informal sector who depend on daily wages for them i think doing basic grocery like you know not having ways to earn that has really hit them hard so what we have seen in the past uh, few days is a lot of people who are based in the city these daily migrant workers wage workers are even taking extreme measures of like you know walking 200 kilometers back home and sometimes it takes them like 10 days you know we've seen videos of people uh walking on the highways with their kids so because like if they stay in the city they can't feed their family and themselves they don't have enough money or cash so i think the vulnerability of the people is largely you know the the ability to absorb shock is also based on class and we see the inequality even getting worse in these circumstances so nepal is really interesting we have a very volatile political environment the government governance system is pretty fragile so like you know so one is testing it's been almost more than 70 days and we have had 2200 tests it might be one of the lowest in the world <laughs> so that is pretty bleak in terms of healthcare like you know we have just like few doctors per like 1000 people or even like maybe 100000 people so what that translates is is like our health system is really not prepared so it's heard of cases of people like you know hundreds of people thousands of people in quarantine but see if we if we really to spike the number of tests and if we to see a spike in confirmed cases i don't know like how nepali or third world like you know health system would cope up the third thing is with like governance so in a place with with governance um, and this might be very different from china or like south korea or singapore where we have seen like really like you know government step up and take uh, really quick actions in nepal what has happened is say uh, there was an instance of procurement of uh, ppe personal protective equipment so nepal doesn't produce any of them so we asked like you know bought a uh, few from china and also the chinese government provided some but there was an issue of a massive corruption corruption scandal in that you know few hundred thousand dollars were skimmed of like you know the of the money you know that was supposed to go to purchase the ppe so the government what actually it did was uh, it asked the nepalese army to step in and procure the goods because the army is an institution, institutionalized institution in nepal and like you know there are systems in place but that also leads to pitfalls of democracy right if there's a government elected government in place and if it's not able to even just like you know procure basic medical supplies in the times of need and if it has to resort to army what does that say about a governance system in a country so people have been asking questions and i think this is one of the bright light i see is maybe these are good times for us to reflect on where we stand 
and what do you need to do moving forward as a society. So we have heard news about 10, 10 million job losses in the U.S. That's many times higher than what the last recession did. In a country like Nepal, we don't have the figures, uh, but this is a country with a median age of less than 25. So what would happen in a country, right, say, you know, where a lot of people are young and they're left without job, left without proper support system in a society, that's a recipe for social unrest. <laughs> Not just in Nepal, but in a lot of part of the world. And even thinking from the perspective of rulers, governments, is not a good thing, <laughs> you know, even thinking selfishly. So I think for policymakers, this is a very good lesson, not just in terms of health policy, but also social safety needs. So one of the examples a lot of people could relate might be like, say, in the U.S., we have heard of news of people who might not even have $400, you know, a lot of people just as basic saving to take care of the healthcare expenses in Nepal. The situation is pretty similar, like, you know, you can't compare dollars to dollars, but a lot of people are in left in similar boat. So like anywhere else in the world, a lot of people, it turns out, you know, the wealth is unequally distributed. How does uh, government and how does society start thinking about that? Because what Corona is doing is, say, if you are rich and wealthy, you can take precautions, right? You can stockpile on food, you can get access to the best health coverage, and you, you can work from home, like, you know, take a white collar job. But it seems for a lot of world, that's not an issue. Like, you know, that's that's simply not doable. So I, I guess these are the largely, large, like, you know, broad reflections. I don't have answers yet, but it seems uh, if things go like this, these are recipes for not just like, you know, social unrest, but major upheavals uh, in the way we live our lives. So, and Nepal has a very close relations with China. So, I guess the Nepali media so far haven't had that coverage. But what has happened is, so the PPE we procured from China weren't according to World Health, Organi- World Health Organization standard. Not because it was like, you know, the vendor's fault, but because we had corruption issues within the country. The government was supposed to, like, you know, check the orders and make sure they were up to WHO standards. We didn't do that. And there was massive corruption, you know. So that was fault in our side. So so I, I think the China equation, where it comes into play is, so for a country like Nepal, our resources are really stressed. One example is like, you know, that many people could tangibly relate is the government set up a fund to like, you know, deal with the coronavirus. So in the US, like we had more than $2 million stimulus. In China, it was close to $400 billion. In US, like, you know, so massive amount of money. We don't have that money. So the amount collected until today was close to um, $0.2 billion, right? So it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's nothing, you know? So that's the situation country is. And what we received was the Chinese government sent out free medical supplies. The Jack Ma Foundation sent masks and stuff. So lots of good help from China. So, but what has like, you know, what the narrative that has been repeating in the media is, I see not in terms of particular China, but a lot of fake news, you know, just today for a lot of people, like, you know, like my parents, for instance, they use Facebook a lot and Facebook is the source of news for a lot of elderly people in Nepal. So my dad was showing me, my mom showed me a news was a Harvard professor was apparently arrested and, you know, there was a fake news circulating that, oh, like, you know, he was arrested because he helped spread coronavirus, right? That's a fake news. That's like when I first read that, I was like, mom, like, you know, 
how did you learn about this is is fake so I, i did some googling and like you know i had to like i had to spend some time on the internet and did some did some fact checking and turns out like you know yes he was like he had some issues with the law enforcement but it wasn't something else related to research but he had he was based in wuhan right so i see a lot of fake news in the media sometimes people talk about this ayurvedic cures of like you know having turmeric and that <laughs> cast of a disease or <laughs> something like taking vapor like you know in hot hot water so i think a lot of fake news circulating in the media and sometimes people just like you know don't know what to fact check right if you are trained in research and if you have some critical angle you could obviously do that but for from what i see a lot of a lot of people you know especially in nepal i can't speak in other parts of the world we take media for granted you know whatever you see in some online news portal we take it for granted and that has i think uh, contributed to more fear mongering and just misperception of what the virus does and the scale and uh, scale of the severity we are facing now so the nepali fake news is really like the media landscape is really interesting there's a lot of like you know online portals sometimes like you know there's a guy or like few people running the media portals and it appears very legit you know so they have this online portal and they publish turn out news very periodical like sometimes a lot of times it might be based on fact but it seems the media wants attention you know it's like it this a clickbait right so the more like clicks you have so you don't even care you don't care to verify you know because you're so stressed on your resources that you just want to turn out the news and get people to your site <laughs> so by the time it got verified you know it already has had like you know sometimes i've seen in case of nepal hundreds and thousands of uh, shares in facebook so a lot of that happening so i don't know like you know so at least like if the content were in media like you know we could like you know maybe i'm sure there are uh, censors in place like you know in social media but if it's in a language like nepali which all very few people use like how do you handle the fake news situation right which i think is not helping the situation at the moment yeah what do the maoist think of the coronavirus so the for for the listeners it might be helpful to know the system of governance we are in so nepal is a democratic country like you know we have elections we try to have regular elections that doesn't always happen due to political instability so in the last elections we had the communist came to power through like you know parliamentary or electoral systems and they have close to two third so you have a communist party in power which has been elected democratically and there's a party you know which is more towards right called Nepali Congress so there is and there are seven provinces in Nepal and out of seven if i'm not mistaken in six on the six of the provinces there's the communist party almost with absolute majority in all this all the provinces so what that means is the communist party is called Nepal communist party is very strong in Nepal but at the same time the party is strong but the state isn't the state mechanisms aren't and nepal is a democratic country so unlike china for instance you know where the with the party state and the party has a lot of say in media and policies the nepali state communist party doesn't have that much say in how the media is regulated they are, they have tried to come up with regulations recently but the culture of freedom is so ingrained i think in nepali politics and nepali culture in general that is hard to curb the media so the media is very free one of the uh, most uh, one of the freest media 
always not always good you know that i've seen in the world <laughs> with fake news circulating so how the government has reacted the maoist so the government is not a maoist government is a communist government obviously with a party with a faction you know that came up after struggle so nepal had a decade long maoist war for 10 years and the maoist came to mainstream politics and they merged their party with another communist party to form this large political party so they are in power so I think so. Whether they are right or left in Nepali spectrum, everyone is concerned about. I think the you know just today there was this address from the prime minister. Everyone is concerned. They are trying to take the best measures. So we haven't seen. Uh, while we have seen very active state involvement in you know in trying to curb the situation, there hasn't been very strong. I think curbing measures from the Communist Party because like whenever that tends to happen. there are so many checks and balances in nepali cultural system more than political system you know that keeps to tends to keep the government in reins so one of the ways in which you know nepali politicians are curbed is like one of the very good examples is this procurement of testing kits in coronavirus so obviously the party is a communist in the government so they try to procure the kits they usually when you try to procure public goods uh, there's a system of calling out for tenders so usually like you call out for expression of interest multiple companies bid and some companies like you know get the tender based on their competitive bidding because of the severity and the like the time of the disease like you know the government said that okay we don't have enough time like you know we want to fast track the procurement process and they decide to give it to a company apparently it seems like you know by taking some bribes so it's not proven but that's the rumor to to a like company and somehow like you know the news in the media got like you know it leaked uh, people started talking about it and within couple of days the government decided okay like you know we're not going forward with this procurement we're going to stop because like and that didn't happen because of like checks and balances within the government because the government is extremely like you know in terms of numbers powerful but the opposition party a lot of civil society members through media and also a lot of like you know social media pressure from people came into play and they criticized the government and the government took a step back so this i think while the systems you know while the government is there they have the maoist the communist party have absolute majority it doesn't always translate to absolute power because of this checks and balances in the culture i'm lambert i live in singapore i would say singapore's response was pretty good from the beginning they they try to they try to quarantine the people and this contain tracing pretty pretty dutifully so they were able to contain the virus for a relatively long time so if you count the starting time of you know patients sort of travelers visiting singapore who showed symptoms and test and tested positive that was early to mid january and now it is early april so it's been 3 months and the now situation is still well under control it's getting a, i mean it's probably approaching the edge of a, a bigger outbreak the life in singapore before the circuit breaker was implemented uh, was pretty normal Lots of companies started started working from home, mine included. I think around only around ten percent of Singaporeans wear masks in on subway or in the mall. The circuit breaker operates quite differently from China's lockdown because lots of services are still here. So all the food food related services were still open, even if you cannot dine in. 
you can only take away food and all the medical services, of course, are open. I think transportation are open. Manufacturing that are considered could impact in global supply chain are also open. So they, I think they try to, they try to implement a lockdown while keeping the essential services with the consideration that the economic impact could be minimized. I think, okay, how should I, how, how should I, sorry, how, I'm, I'm not sure how, how, how I can incorporate this question. Uh, Okay, the public opinion I see online is pretty positive. Singapore citizens are well well known for being obedient to what government says. For local Singaporeans, they don't cook at home a lot, so I do not I do not think the locals will will start cooking a lot more often just because the coronavirus has, it, it has hit, and because the food, all the food all the hawker centers will remain open and all the supermarkets remain open. So they still have lots of food options. Regarding racism, I think it's probably one of the uh, advantages of being an Asian country because chi Chinese ethnically is the majority of the, it's the majority of Singapore populations. So it's hard to tell on the street if you are a Singaporean Chinese or a China Chinese. So it's very hard to practice racism, basically. I think the foreign workers, especially the ones that are on the lower income side, they're not very well taken care of financially because foreign workers, basically those who work like very low wage jobs, they're going to be the worst hit in this whole pandemic because their jobs are mostly services that involve dealing with people. So when the businesses shut down, they will not get their money, but they still have to pay rents. The government is not providing enough financial help Largely, I think, because there has long been a local hostility against, you know, government treating foreigners too well. Probably three weeks, four weeks ago, Malaysia announced that they were, they were locking down the whole country. And there were lots of migrant workers from Malaysia who took, you know, the gap between the announcement and the official closure to rush to Singapore. And they were trying to find accommodations because these Malaysian migrant workers, they commute between Singapore and, and Malaysia every day, and now they have to find accommodation. The government initially tried to provide a 14-day accommodation subsidy for employers who, you know, who want to keep the Malaysian migrant workers working. But I think they did face some backlash, so they announced they would not extend this 14-day accommodation subsidy further, even if the Malaysian lockdown has actually been extended for two more weeks. So I think that's the case where the government was trying to push the limit. You know, they want to extend the, the financial support to the migrant workers a bit, but they were not courageous enough to push further. The other thing I think is very interesting to watch is how the Singapore's foreign policy is going to shift, given that the hostility, the level, the level of hostility between China and the West in general has increased and will increase significantly in the future. So Singapore has traditionally been 
being on the no alliance front. So they, they, they try to be friends with every country, but that line is going to be much harder to walk in the future. And so I think it will be extremely interesting to watch how the new PAP government is going to walk, walk that line. Or are they still trying to be, are, are they still going to push this uh, strategy of being friends with everyone? Or are they going to realize that this is a, a path that's not worth pursuing? Hi, I would like to give a short update on what has happened in Singapore more recently since the last time I spoke with Jordan. As you can see, the numbers are increasing very sharply. We're now over 11,000 and we're basically at the pace of adding 1,000 every day. If you take a more detailed look at the numbers, you'll find that most of these numbers are from foreign worker dormitories and they compose of close to 9,000 out of these uh, 11,000 detected positive. And I believe most of these foreign workers have caught the virus way, way before the circuit breaker started, which means the virus has been spreading in the dormitory community for quite a while now. It's only because recently massive testing were being conducted in, in the dormitories that these numbers start getting reflected in the, in the total numbers. Aside from the foreign worker dormitories, the community spread in the in a wide in a more wide community is actually decreasing, which means the circuit breaker is working and the further risk of community spread is under control. Both the linked and unlinked cases have been decreasing, so to, it doesn't it doesn't pose a genuine enhanced health risk to local Singaporeans and people who don't live in the foreign worker dormitories. I also want to do a bit of deep dive into the outbreak of dorms. I think there are two reasons. The first reason is there was this strange policy of asking people who were tested for COVID-19 to stay at home while waiting for the results. This is a reasonable policy for, for locals because they do have some home facilities to isolate themselves and not socialize with their family members when they're waiting for results. But it definitely didn't make sense for foreign workers because they live in rooms that compose of to 8 to 10 bunk beds per room, so there's no way they can isolate themselves when they're waiting for results. The second is, of course, the government inaction on the dormitory conditions. The first foreign worker who tested positive was back in end of January, so it was very early. But at that time, governments were only handing out brochures to the dorms and telling employers to enhance their hygiene conditions. Uh, there, was, there was nothing mandatory, and those measures were definitely not comparable to what they were doing right now, which is uh, they were moving the foreign workers outside of the dorms gradually uh, so to, to reduce the crowdedness in the dorms. They were also telling the, the existing workers not to go out of their doors, and they were conducting you know, massive testing and isolating people who tested positive. So I think the, the underlying sentiment behind this inaction on foreign worker dormitories is probably because foreign policymakers and locals alike, they think of foreign workers as invisible because they are transient. The foreign worker policy is designed to not make foreign workers stay. They're supposed to come here, work, and then they will leave, you know, with their, with, with their newly attained money. I also don't think it's very fair to blame it uh, completely on the government. Of course, the government would take most of the blame, and I have no, no problems with that. 
But I think it's also noticeable that the media, as well as the opposition, or、uh, people in general, failed to raise flags the potential risky conditions in forward dormitories. Again, because of this, you, you know, invisible people mindset. Going forward, I think in the dormitories, since people are getting isolated and they're they're getting steadily moved out of the dormitories to live in. Areas that are not so crowded, it's not very likely to see、uh, massive new infections in dormitories. The community spread, as I have said, is under control, but we still need to watch on how the circuit breaker is working and if it is able to cut the community spread numbers into single digits. It is now in the range of 20 people every day. Singing it for you too. And when I say something that makes you feel good inside, when I say that little thing, I say that little part that might sting you in your heart. Now I wanna hear you scream. I wanna hear you say ow. I wanna hear you say ow. Don't just say I'll say ow, and I believe my work will be done. Ow, ow, I love it tomorrow, just like I love it today. I'm so weak. But I feel a little better if you come on to me. You don't have to tell me, but I believe somebody over here alone, someone. And I believe somebody out here alone, someone. Said it's getting a little cold outside, and everybody needs somebody. Everybody needs somebody. Everybody needs somebody. You know I like to sing this song. I said I like to sing this song. It makes me think about the good things. It makes me think about the good things.
Yeah. <laughs> 